For the week beginning the 15th of January, this is the History of Pop Culture. I'm Chesney Forks-Porter. Hello, let's get started. Today on the show, it's Game On, as we look back at the birth of the video game industry. Also, it's football, just not the good kind. <laughs> we talk about the original Super Bowl in 1967. A musical about the American Revolution that revolutionised musical theatre. We talk Hamilton. And the biggest award show of the year. If you don't count literally any other ceremony, we look back at the very first edition of the Golden Globes. But first... What are you listening to? Well, congratulations, you've managed to stumble upon the very first episode of the history of pop culture. If you're listening as this episode comes out, welcome. And uh, if you've managed to travel back 500 episodes 10 years from now after this show's become a massive hit, hi, can you believe I used to do this show in my spare room? Unbelievable. This is the history of pop culture, where we look at the upcoming calendar week, but in years gone by, and take a deep dive into significant cultural events that took place on those dates. This could be anything from a movie release or a chart-topping hit to a celebrity death or award show catastrophe. We're going to cover video games, theatre, radio, literature, stand-up comedy, tech, TV, film and hell, maybe even podcasts. And to, uh, to add a bit more jeopardy, I'll be ranking each pop culture event in terms of their significance. And at the end of each episode, I'll be crowning the pop culture thing that pops my culture the most. Enough chat, let's kick off. Once again, for the week, beginning the 15th of January, this is the History of Pop Culture with me, Chesney Forks-Porter. For our first story today, we turn to January the 15th, 1967, kicking off with the very first Super Bowl. On January 15th, 1967, on a bright, clear day in the Los Angeles Coliseum, the big question which had troubled the football world for seven years was answered. For the first time, the Green Bay Packers, champions of the National Football League, played the Kansas City Chiefs, the best team in the American Football League. That's right, the massive American show of pomp and grandeur that is the Super Bowl made its debut in 1967, following the NFL and AFL completing the sexiest of business deals. Ooh, a merger. At the time, known as the AFL-NFL World Championship game, though, personally, I, I think winning a national championship and calling it a world championship is a bit dubious, the event was devised as a way of figuring out who was the better team between the two sides that won their respective league. In this case, the NFL's Green Bay Packers beat the AFL's Kansas City Chiefs to become the first international global world champions of North America. And judging by the figures, it was a smash hit, being watched by 51 million Americans split between dual coverage on NBC and CBS. The two channels uh, still share that coverage today alongside Fox and rotate which of them will show the game every year, with the 2023 offering on Fox being watched by a staggering 112 million people in the US. That's a third of the entire population of the country. 
worldwide, the Super Bowl last year was watched by around 150 million people, which is just shy of the 1.5 billion that watched the 2022 FIFA World Cup final. I'm, I'm, no judgments. I'm, I'm just saying. But of course, now this this is a pop culture show, not a sports show. So let's talk about the most important part of the Super Bowl. The halftime show, that 15-minute moment where everyone that isn't a middle-aged father actually pays attention to the TV, as the likes of Rihanna, Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Aerosmith and Paul McCartney put on one of the most anticipated shows of the year. So, who performed at the inaugural show? Was it a 1960s megastar or a future musical legend? No. Actually, it was the University of Arizona marching band and the Anaheim High School drill team. I mean, it's not exactly Lady Gaga, is it? In fact, it would be 21 years until a famous musical act headlined the performance with Chubby Checker, the Rockettes, and 88 grand piano players headlining the performance in 1988. Now, sticking with halftime, halftime has gone on to become one of, if not the most sought-after spot in advertising, with a 30-second ad slot fetching a $7 million asking price at this year's event. Though the most expensive Super Bowl commercials came in 2020, when both Google and Amazon had 90-second long commercials at the Super Bowl halftime show, costing over $16 million each. So uh, let's rank it as our first story. The very first Super Bowl is it's pretty darn relevant and influential to Americans. I'm joking. <laughs> of course, that's enough football, American football bashing from me. Uh, it's going to get an eight out of ten on my popometer, which brings us on to exactly a year forward in time for our second story to January the 15th, 1968, the birth of video games. Now, before you get too excited, this isn't the release of Pong or, or Pac-Man hitting the arcades. This is something uh, slightly more litigious. The man known as the creator of the video game industry, Ralph Bayer, submitted a patent for a TV gaming system, which would eventually lead to the release of the very first video game system, the Magnavox Odyssey. Magnavox presents Odyssey, the electronic game of the future. Odyssey easily attaches to any brand TV, black and white or color, to create a closed-circuit electronic playground. Odyssey gives you all the exciting action of hockey and 11 other challenging play and learning games for the entire family. Odyssey, a new dimension for your television. Now at your Magnavox dealer. He's listed in the yellow pages. Now, Ralph Bayer was born into a Jewish family in Germany in 1922 and moved to New York with his family as a teenager in 1938, which, you know, for reasons I'm sure are fairly obvious. He then eventually became a naturalised US citizen. In his adult life, he worked in military intelligence during World War II and joined several tech companies after the war. Whilst working at Sanders Associates in 1966, Ralph came up with the idea of playing a game using a TV screen. So after pitching like his life depended on it, his bosses granted him $2,500 and two bills. Literally two colleagues, both called Bill. And soon enough, they submitted their patent and created... The Brown Box, which 
Sounds like something I could make after a Taco Bell, to be honest. <laughs> the proto, the uh, the prototype for the Magnavox Odyssey isn't the video game device you're imagining. There is there's no typical controller or enemies on the screen. This was closer to a filter than it was a fully fledged gaming console. Imagine if you can a plastic sheet that goes over your screen that when you put different filters over it rather crudely simulates different sports and games such as table tennis and hockey all of which are controlled by little paddles that you hold in your hands so no it doesn't pass the test of being able to run doom on it i'm afraid fast forward to 1972 and the company magnavox releases the brown box as the odyssey now, though this console might not quite be up to the standards of a PlayStation, Nintendo Switch, or even a mighty Commodore 64, we would not have the video game industry we have today without this very patent being filed on this very day, on January the 15th, 1968. But, you know, because it wasn't the big release of a console or the unveiling of something amazing, I can't give it a 10 out of 10, even if it is the birth of something incredible. I'm going to give it another 8 out of 10 on the Popometer. Now, let's have a look at some shorter stories from this week in pop culture. January the 16th, 1979, the landmark BBC series Life on Earth is first broadcast. It's the series that makes David Attenborough a household name. On the 16th of January 2009, Boy George, the singer, is sentenced to 15 months in prison for false imprisonment. Essentially, he decided to handcuff a male escort to a radiator in his house because he'd accused him of stealing something from them. Also on the 16th of January 1988, Tina Turner performs in Rio de Janeiro for 180,000 people, which was at the time the most attended concert for a single performer at that time. Been broken many times since. January the 17th, 1978, the Sex Pistols break up and January the 17th, 1998... All Saints, the British girl group, score their first UK number one with the song Never Ever. January the 17th, 2014 now, and Madonna apologises for using a racial slur to describe her own son. January the 18th, 1971, a bit of a guilty pleasure for me now in professional wrestling. Ivan Koloff ended the eight-year championship reign of Bruno Sammartino, beating him for the WWWF World Championship. On January the 19th, 1963, the Beatles made their national UK television debut on the Thank Your Lucky Stars programme. On January the 20th, 1998, Dawson's Creek airs for the first time. On January the 20th, 2006, High School Musical airs on the Disney Channel, becoming its most successful original movie. On January the 20th, 2012, the singer Etta James passes away. And on January the 20th, 2022, Meatloaf, the singer, passes away as well. Now is a good time to mention that if you're enjoying the show and want a daily dose of pop culture history, you can head to our TikTok page at History of Pop Culture. That's one word, at History of Pop Culture. On there, you'll find a daily minute-long hit of the biggest stories from today in the history of pop culture.
Now, back to the show. Story number three today is January the 20th, 1944, the very first Golden Globes ceremony. Now, winning an award at this coveted ceremony is the pinnacle of any actor's career, besides winning an Oscar, a BAFTA, a Tony, or having a cameo in a Christopher Nolan film. That was the Golden Globe theme played by the artist Yoshiki. Now, the Golden Globes these days are more known for having Ricky Gervais mercilessly roast the A-list attendees in front of a worldwide audience of millions. But the original ceremony on January the 20th, 1944, was a far more humble affair. The awards ceremony for distinguished achievements in the film industry, granted by the Foreign Correspondents Association now known as the Hollywood Foreign Press, didn't even have globes. The original awards were presented on scrolls. And I'm sorry, but if I've just poured my heart and soul into the role of a lifetime and I'm being presented the award for best actor, you bet I want a bloody trophy rather than a rolled up piece of paper. Do you know, it actually reminds me a little bit of my uni graduation where they handed out our certificates, in inverted commas, rolled up in a bow only to realise when you got off stage that they were literally blank pieces of rolled up paper. It felt like quite an empty achievement, to be honest. Now, at the time, the ceremony had no national broadcast and was a very informal affair. The original winners included Jennifer Jones as Best Actress for her role in The Song of Bernadette, which I have very much never heard of, but it did actually also win Best Picture that year too. And Paul Lucas, who won Best Actor for his role in Watch on the Rhine again. Don't act like you've heard of it. They beefed up their ideas the year after and held a contest to decide what shape their trophy would be because there was nothing better for anyone to be getting on with than 1945, clearly. So as if by magic, 1945 saw the birth of the first proper Golden Globe ceremony, complete with, you guessed it, globe-shaped trophies. And then that was it. The Golden Globes went on swimmingly forever and ever and ever with absolutely no controversies or scandals whatsoever. And they championed inclusion, diversity and integrity, and they never took bribes. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, or HFPA, who have run the awards up until 2023, have been consistently accused of being shady buggers. In the 1960s, it was revealed that advertisers and sponsors had had a hand in which movies were nominated, and the award organisers were pressuring filmmakers and stars to attend the awards in person, suggesting they may not actually win if they didn't show up. These rather cheeky details ended up costing the HFPA quite dearly, with the ceremony being banned from television as a result between 1969 to 1975. I bet they learnt their lesson. Let me just check my notes. Oh, no, they didn't. In 1982, the HFPA was under fire again when it was claimed that the husband of the actress Pia Zadora had paid for Pia to win the Best New Star Award at that year's ceremony. They probably would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the fact that, firstly, the film Butterfly that she was nominated for was one of the worst reviewed of the year, with her particular performance being panned by just about everybody who saw it. And secondly... 
the film hadn't even actually come out yet, so she wasn't even eligible in the first place. (laughs) This particular scandal led CBS to rip up their contract with the Golden Globes and stop showing it on their network. The Golden Raspberry Awards, or Razzies as they're more commonly known for bad cinema, made sure to right the wrongs of this particular tragedy, awarding Pia Zadora the Worst New Star Award and Worst Performance Award that year. I bet that sure showed the Hollywood foreign press. I guarantee it. You know what? I bet my house that they never did anything shady ever again. Well, turns out the bank owns my house now because in 2011, controversy struck again as it turned out that the team behind the 2011 movie, Burlesque, which I must admit is a very good film, flew out members of the Hollywood foreign press to a share concert in Las Vegas. And Angelina Jolie, who was starring in The Tourist, which I must admit is a very bad film, personally lobbied members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association to nominate it for Best Picture. And wouldn't you know, both Burlesque and The Tourist got nominated. The Tourist, a spy thriller, was nominated for Best Musical or Comedy. Just let that sink in for a moment. Now look, I don't want this to be a let's all kick the Golden Globes party because they have provided us with many fantastic TV moments. As I said earlier, Ricky Gervais's stint at hosting the event has gone down in TV history as some of the best celebrity roasting ever. Or the heartwarming moment in 1987 when the hearing-impaired actress Marley Matlin gave her award speech using sign language after playing a deaf student in the film Children of Lesser God. The Golden Globes have always been the best early tastemaker for the awards season ahead, with winners at the Globes often being tipped for glory at the show's better-looking and more successful older brother, the Oscars. And, hey, things could be on the up-and-up for the Globes as the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is out and Dick Clark Productions and the newly formed Golden Globes Foundation is in. The Hollywood Foreign Press gave away the Golden Globes last year and the 2024 ceremony that has just happened was the first under the new regime. The king is dead. Long live the king. The very first Golden Globe ceremony is getting a 5 out of 10 on my popometer, but I'm not biased, honest. Before moving on to the last story of the day, let's play a bit of a game before our last story. I'm going to give you the lead actors in some TV shows and films and the date they came out. Let's see if you can guess what TV show or film it is. I'll start you out with a more recent one to make it a bit easier. What TV show debuted on Disney Plus on the 15th of January 2021 starring Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen? That's WandaVision. Which cult classic movie premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January the 19th, 2001, starring Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal? It's Donnie Darko. Which 1994 British comedy film premiered January the 20th, 1994, starring Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell? It's four weddings and a funeral. Now, let's do a couple of music questions here as well. On January the 15th, 2001, Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo, was top of the UK singles charts with what song? My Love Don't Cost a Thing. And on January the 15th, 1992, 
the British rock band Queen were top of the singles charts with which iconic song? Just guess a Queen song, because it's the one you're thinking of. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. And if we go all the way back to January the 15th, 1978, the song Mull of Kintyre was number one. But who was the artist? It was the band Wings. But if you said Paul McCartney, I'll let you have that one. Now let's look at our final story in today's show, something that falls within my specialist subject of musical theatre. January the 20th, 2015, Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical masterpiece, Hamilton, debuts off-Broadway before revolutionising musical theatre forever. Across the waves, our Hamilton kept his guard up. Inside, he was longing for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. Then a hurricane came. That was Lin-Manuel Miranda performing a piece from Hamilton for then-President Barack Obama at the White House in 2009, six years before Hamilton would show its face off-Broadway. At the time of that performance, Lin didn't consider Hamilton to actually be a musical, but as a concept historical hip-hop album. Now, don't get me wrong, Lynn, you're a genius, but I can't see that playing against Drake or Nicki Minaj anytime soon. Hamilton tells the story of the ascension and demise of American founding father, Alexander Hamilton, through hip-hop music. And after his performance at the White House, Lynn changed things up and realised the potential for a proper musical as a follow-up to his smash hit show, In the Heights. So, in 2014... The first workshop production of Hamilton the Musical was performed at the 52nd Street Project, featuring many of the cast that would go on to star in the original Broadway cast a year later, including Leslie Odom Jr., who's known for appearing in one of the best films of 2022, Glass Onion, and the worst film of 2023, The Exorcist Believer. David Diggs, known for appearing in the newest Little Mermaid film and the TV show Snowpiercer, and Philippa Sue, who starred in the TV show Smash, as well as being in a frankly ridiculous amount of Broadway shows. We fast forward one year, and January the 20th, 2015, the very first preview of Hamilton, similar to what we know it today, premieres off-Broadway before transferring to Broadway later that year. Much to the annoyance of every other musical on Broadway, it basically becomes one of the most successful shows ever, Overnight, Its entire off-Broadway run was sold out. Then almost the entire first year of its Broadway run sold out as well. And ticket prices began to inflate to a crazy amount, with some tickets eventually increasing to over $1,000 a ticket. And on the resale market, it got real crazy. In 2016... Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote the show and was also starring in the show as Hamilton, announced their departure and fans went feral, with one ticket to his final show being listed on the resale site StubHub for over $9,000. And the success didn't stop there. Hamilton became one of the best-reviewed shows of all time, getting five stars and ten out of ten from basically everybody who saw it. And then the Tony Awards rolled around, the biggest night of the year for American theatre. And Hamilton broke as many records as it could and became the most nominated show 
ever, receiving 16 award nominations over 13 categories, narrowly beating the previous record of 15 held by the producers, which stood since 2001. Hamilton went on to win 11 of those awards, which means the producers managed to fight back and hold on to their record of most Tony wins with 12 wins. As it stands, Hamilton is the 21st longest-running show on Broadway with nearly 3,000 performances under its belt and it shows absolutely no signs of slowing down anytime soon. It's been on four national tours of the US, has had a West End production running in London since 2017, an Australian production, a German production and a major international tour over the last couple of years too. Hamilton could be considered by many, probably alongside Wicked, as the most successful musical of the 21st century, with every single writer, director and the producer in the industry constantly looking to find the next Hamilton. What's going to be the next big show that captures the attention of the mainstream in the same way? Only time will tell. But for now, its effect on the musical theatre industry and on my own personal bias, I'm giving it a 7 out of 10 on my popometer. Now, I've given our video game story and the original Super Bowl an 8 out of 10 this week, and I simply can't have a tie on the very first show. So I think, considering the video game industry is far and away the most profitable entertainment industry in the world, I think the birth of that industry has to take the win for me. So the most relevant and impactful story of the week this week is Ralph Bayer submitting his patent for the brown box video game system and kickstarting the video game industry. And that is the history of pop culture for the week beginning the 15th of January. This was our very first episode, so I'd love to know what you liked, what you didn't, and anything you think we missed or that we should be talking about in future editions. Please send through any comments you have straight to me using the email chesney at tleproductions.co.uk. That's T-L-E, as in T for tiny, L for little, E for eggplant. Chesney at tleproductions.co.uk or through my Instagram, chesneyfm. Today's show was research, written, produced and presented by me, Chesney Forks Porter, and it's a TLE production. Have a lovely week and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>